0: Good morning, good afternoon and good evening to you all. This is the Business Day Spotlight, your destination for African business made simple. My name is Muriwa Kabaza and for today we are in uh, the we are in Johannesburg and uh, we, we are joined by uh, Jonathan Oppenheimer. We are at his offices here in, jo- in Johannesburg. It's actually quite interesting for me because your offices are very close to our, you know, our offices uh, because we are yeah, very close to our offices so, you know, thank you so much. You you know, for inviting us here. Um, we're going to be having a discussion, you know, around the world of uh, philanthropy. Uh, Jonathan is a businessman. He's had a storied career, you know, along the likes of, uh, you know, Anglo-American and the, and the like. Um, he's part of uh, the, you know, the Oppenheimer family. So, you know, many will know uh, that particular name in South Africa. Uh, but for today, we are going to be talking to him about, you know, the stage uh, that he finds himself in you know on that uh, on that journey of life and you know some thoughts around uh, the power of a philanthropy obviously as an economist i am you know very interested in um, you know some of the flows that are happening in the philanthropy space because a lot of people might not know but there's a lot of needles that are actually being moved, um, you know, across the world because of, um, you know, the capital and uh, some of the money that's going into philanthropy. So really keen to get some of those thoughts. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for
1: being with us today. It's a, a pleasure. It's good to be here.
0: So, uh, I think a good place for us to start. Um, Usually when we are talking to to people, we're talking to, you know, executives and we tend to ask them, okay, so tell us about, you know, your company and we get uh, the 30 seconds or so, uh, you know, elevator pitch. Uh, but maybe what we could get, you know, from uh, your sense is uh, a sense of you were at your offices now, you know, and uh, what does Jonathan Oppenheimer's, you know, life look like in 2023?
1: It's a little bit manic at the moment. (laughs) A lot going on. Uh, So as a family, we have effectively four key pillars to to our commercial life.
0: Yeah.
1: We have uh, owned and operated investments, which are predominantly across Africa. And uh, we have a venture arm, which does uh, some early stage investing out of Singapore. Yeah. And we have a global portfolio of assets that are managed through two managers, which is run really out of the UK. And then we have what I call our um, non-financial activities, which include our philanthropic activities, some advisory work we do through a, a vehicle called the Brent Host Foundation and uh, various other bits and pieces. And then, so that, so that's the, the day job, if you can call it that, and then the evening job is is running, you know, or supporting and enjoying being a family man and having a family life and looking after all the things that the family enjoy doing. So that's it, I, I, I'd like to think I'm reasonably
0: busy. Okay, cool. It, it sounds like uh, you know there's a lot of balance, you know, in what it is that uh, that you're doing. And by balance, I don't mean that everything is equal, but rather you've got many different interests that you are you know exploring
1: yeah i uh, honestly i i think that the the essence of how you how you find a balance mm-hmm. is you you really need to feel like you're trying to aim at trying at at a, a an answer or a an achievement which will stand the test of time mm-hmm. and so i often particularly in our business activities think about the legacy that will exist after i am gone yeah much more so than, what is it I'm doing today? And that legacy is really framed by something my great-grandfather said in 1954. And he said of Anglo-American, which he'd founded, uh, we're here to make a profit, but in such a way as to benefit the peoples and communities in which we operate. Now in 1954, I don't think people really understood the idea of of ecological fragility. And so there was no reference simply because there was no knowledge yeah. of, of that aspect of what needed to be included in benefiting the peoples and communities in which we operate. Yeah. I'd I I'd like to think, and I'm pretty sure he would have if he had known, added benefit the people, the communities, and the environment in which we operate. Yeah. And by doing that, uh, you expand the, the sustainability argument. About what we're trying to achieve
0: I think uh, what i want what I want to pick up on is um, the role of philanthropy in addressing you know issues around the world right you're a businessman, mm-hmm. but now we are having a conversation about philanthropy and usually the in the private sector the the attitude that's taken is you identify a problem or you identify an opportunity and you go and you find a solution to either taking advantage of the opportunity or addressing a particular issue. And then, you know, you possibly make a return on that. How does that feed into the world of philanthropy, right? Because in a in a lot of cases, we're taking huge uh, huge societal issues and you're trying to find solutions, you know, to that. So I'm just trying to see if there's any parallel that can be drawn between the way you approach um, a particular problem, you know, that needs to be addressed in the private sector, that you build a business around, you know, versus, you know, how you approach, you know, something when you get into the world of, um, you know, philanthropy. So before we go there, I think one needs to
1: really unpack for a moment the idea of what philanthropy is. Uh, Philanthropy, and here I'm going to most probably annoy a lot of people, uh, really falls into three camps, of which two camps, to my mind, are beneficial, but but significantly less beneficial than the third. The first camp is, is driven by... Individuals' desire for recognition, so um, it's it's an ego issue, mm. and how that philanthrop- philanthropic money is spent is not necessarily well considered, mm. and it doesn't necessarily have an element of sustainability around it. So it's I gave a million dollars or or ten million rand or twenty million rand to X, aren't I great? And that kind of philanthropy. Is pretty significant. The second kind of philanthropy is effectively trying to buy, and I stress the word buy, a social contract to operate. And it either can come in the form of compliance. So there is a regulatory requirement to have a certain amount of expenditure in ESG, and you spend it. And that's often corporate philanthropy. And again, It doesn't necessarily hang on sustainability because the purpose of it is buying the social contract to operate, being compliant with the necessary defined criteria of that social contract to operate. And again, when it switches off, what happens? The third kind of philanthropy is where people are curious about solving bigger problems and don't necessarily look to that particular expenditure generating a financial return. That kind of philanthropy, for me, is the best kind of philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And it's ultimately identifying where there isn't an immediate short-term capability or capacity to put it into a commercial construct. But if you can resolve it, or if you can begin to address it, it really creates sustainability in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And that, to my mind, is, is, is super exciting. So from a family perspective, we like to concentrate on that third bucket. Yeah. And I'll give you a classic example. I mean, some of the work we're doing in conservation, and we'll spend some time talking about that later, is, are other examples. But there is, there's a really pertinent one. There's no money in it for us to solve title deed problems. But by solving title deed problems uh, in South Africa, we are enabling South Africa to grow faster which in turn will give our businesses in South Africa a better economic environment to operate into. So there's a very, very long cycle and a very, dare I call it, gentle and distant relationship between the two. But we feel that there is a critical issue here which, 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 if solved, could truly empower a whole class of South Africans who are now living in housing which they have no title to and therefore they cannot access the financial services systems and uh, and the financial service sector to, to borrow against those so they get, don't have capital so they're living in a cash economy. And if you're living in a cash economy, it's really, really difficult to build a balance sheet because you're living hand to mouth and you're using your disposable cash to To effectively survive, whereas what we really would like to see is people beginning to build in enterprises I mean, I just saw a recent uh, statistic i don 't know if it's true that that backroom rentals are now worth something like a hundred billion rand
0: um, so it depends on the data, yeah, but I know that's uh... I mean, it's, a, it's a, Lesaka put out some data last week. Yeah, that's the one I'm looking at. I think it's a hundred billion rent. Together with Gigi Alcock, and I think they said that the back rooms are twenty billion. Oh, not Spaza right. rentals are twenty-five. Yeah, yeah, somewhere there. But I, I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a huge, it's a huge number. But you, you can't build that back
1: room if you don't have title because you don't have the capital to build it. Yeah. If you can borrow against your title deed, you can build it, you get back in one or two years and your ongoing contribution to the economy is great. So that kind of philanthropy of really going in and looking at what seems to be a Gordian knot of intractable, intractable problems and starting to actually cut through it with some really innovative ideas about how you do that is making a meaningful contribution, not in any way for us Directly, but tangentially, yes. But critically for the people who then get title, mm-hmm. and so in our project that we've got, we've we've been able to, uh, in a very prototyping stage, working with a whole bunch of other partners, including government, including other interested NGOs and the likes, we've been able to identify mechanisms to to help people secure their title. And I think we've just we've secured just under a thousand titles so far. Actually, it's more than a thousand titles. No, it's about a thousand titles, and that's basically liberated seven hundred million rand for the South African economy. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not a, a thousand titles that is a drop in the ocean, but the principle that that thousand titles is now representing is representing a million, five million new title deeds, yeah. which haven't been issued, haven't been secured, and if you do it at five million title deeds at half a million rand a pop. Then you're talking real money and a real contribution to the South African economy, and that's done by this catalytic investment in trying to solve this this intractable problem.
0: I really like what you're saying because um, I often tell the story about the fact that I went to Rhodes, and I ended my years at Rhodes University at Rhodes Business School, and at the time we didn't understand that they were a little bit ahead of the time because. They the motto for Rhodes University is where leaders learn. But at the business school, it was leadership for sustainability. So almost everything we did across the board um, at master's level had an element of sustainability in it, people, planet, profit, um, all that. And I guess it's only now that ESG has really become, I'm going to call it mainstream, that I understand what they were trying to teach us back in those days. And one of the things that I found interesting even back then was this issue of if you're going to address big societal needs, it's good to have some type of a model around it. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what I'm you know hearing you say. Mm. So I wanted to get your sense around Um, people talk about social enterprise and I sort of feel sometimes people don't fully understand what we mean by social enterprise to say that if you're going to have um, something to address a big need in society, in the environment, have a model that's able to, you know, uh, perpetuate this thing as opposed to what tends to happen with a lot of um, NGO and NPO projects. They get funding, they run through it. And then it collapses and, and it's wow. gone. Yeah, so.
1: So I, I, I would challenge one thing in everything you said. I'm totally supportive of it. Yeah. And that's the ordering of people, planet, profit. And why do I challenge that ordering? Not because I believe that you, you, you need to. I think all three are absolutely critical. Yeah. But of the three, which generates the continuity of that activity? Okay, yeah. And it's not people, and it's not planet. It's the profit, it's the profit in the short term. Yeah. And so, if you don't have the profit, you can't have the sustainability. And there, just like you know, any investment is a risk, and a lot of investment you make to build a plant, you know, to build a mine takes ten to fifteen years. Often, a big mine. And so you're investing a couple of billion dollars starting today with a hope of revenue starting in 15 years' time. Now, you've done a hell of a lot of planning. You've done an enormous amount of design and risk mitigation and everything else so that you're pretty confident you're going to get that cash. But you don't get the cash for 15 years. Now. In every investment committee or or board that you sit in, those decisions are made. Philanthropy is the same. What's the investment today? The investment today is putting money over the fence to people to fix the title deed, to fix the conservation challenges, to to bring real data and real knowledge into the room. If you don't do that, you're never going to solve those problems. And it's an investment. And the key thing is to look at that as an investment. But when you're buying yourself a a social contract to operate by complying with a bunch of regulations. So in the mining world, South African mines have to be compliant with their social labor plan. That gives them the contract to operate. If they're in breach of their social labor plan, government has the right to withdraw their mining license. That's not investing in the future. Government is the determinant of what that investment looks like. It's not a conscious, I am investing in the future. And so as a businessman, you end up treating that as a tax. It's, it's an additional cost to your business. It's not something where you're really thinking, how do I create value? And that's why I am saying that kind of philanthropy, that and it's not philanthropy, but, but that kind of contribution to the social good, while good is nowhere near as good as where you're making an investment for the future and you're making an investment for sustainability to answer those three questions of profit, people, and planet. You do that, and you really, really begin to move the dial instead of just marking time. And the guys who are doing it for ego are also playing in that same business because the ego is an immediate gratification. It's an immediate sitting at the dinner party. Oh, wow. You did that? Wow. But actually, three years later, when that business is no longer, well, that NPO or NGO is no longer in existence because the next round of funding didn't come. Yeah.
0: So when it comes to that, right, uh, perhaps maybe you could take us through on your side in your own philanthropy journey. Um, was this something you inherently knew before you got into it, or is it something that you have had to come to terms with?
1: That's a, it's, a, it's a good question. And For those who can't see, I'm looking at the ceiling (laughs) contemplating the future. Um, Both. I I think the principle of philanthropy is investing, and it's investing for the future, and was for me always self-evident. I always didn't like what I call sustainable philanthropy where you, or, or forever philanthropy, where you, you're effectively funding the same institution to do the same thing year on year on year on year. And the key thing here, and I, I mean, we all forget this, is philanthropy as a percentage of world GDP is less than 1%. Yeah. So when you're looking at the world economy, and many of the world's truly intractable problems are being addressed by philanthropy, we're throwing less than 1% of the world's resources at the world's most difficult problems if we only rely on philanthropic money. What we need to do, again, is use philanthropy to do those superventure elements, what I call the, the catalytic tipping points. We need to find ways to have people who are prepared to put money at risk for a bigger return, a greater return, a societal return, not a personal return to begin the journey and quickly get through that catalytic period to where other people can then come with venture money. And once that venture money has begun to prove itself, other people can come with bigger money, you know, D&E round funding, to build a factory, to build a sustainable design for a new solution, build a new ecologically friendly energy production source, whatever it is. So it's, it's that journey and, and, the, and the, the real seed, seed, seed money. Is philanthropy in its best form. And what we end up doing is we end up distract, detracting so much philanthropic money from that really good seed venture, super venture money. And we end up, a whole bunch of people use it, as I say, for ego or for, for buying um, social contract to operate in a, in a much more process oriented way. It doesn't really help. And so actually what we're doing is we're trying to solve some of the world's most difficult problems with a tiny percentage of 1% of world GDP. Are we nuts? We're trying to ensure the survivability of the human race here. We're trying to ensure our future. If you went to most people on the street and said, how much are you prepared to commit of your disposable income to ensuring our future? I think most people would say up to 10%. And yet we're using less than uh, substantially less than one percent to do it. Uh, are we trying to kill ourselves?
0: <laughs> it's 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 a very good question, and one of the things I was uh, curious about is the fact that a big piece of what you got, what you're focused on, is let's say conservation, right? It's it's, it's, it's one, one of it's of one of our yeah it's, it's it's one it's one of the elements it's one of our legs. In addressing something like conservation and, you know, some of the other items, with what you're saying and where we've gone to in this discussion, as an economist, I'm now, the the, the hamster's running on the wheel here, and I'm like, I'm (laughs) glad, I'm glad, this is good. (laughs) The hamster's running on the wheel, and I'm wondering, are we still having a conversation about traditional capitalism living alongside philanthropy, or are we having a conversation about rethinking capitalism?
1: (laughs) Have we got enough time? Uh, um, Can I put the philanthropy piece on the side for a moment? And I'm gonna come to the issue of capitalism to my mind. Personally, I don't have a problem with the idea of capitalism that grows the real balance sheet of the world. And by the real balance sheet, I mean it goes into training people and giving people skills, and it goes into building the infrastructure that produces the goods and services that the world demands. Mm -hmm. I do have a problem with capitalism which inflates the. Notional price that people are prepared to pay for those assets, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a, a a really interesting aside since two thousand and eight in the global financial crisis. the world mm-hmm. predominantly u s Europe and china and Japan have printed fifty trillion dollars of additional capital for the world in quantitative easing. Yeah. Less than 10% of that, actually quite substantially less than 10% of that, has actually found its way into additions to the world's balance sheet, the real balance sheet. The rest has gone into financial markets, inflating prices, because there are no more goods in those markets. So if you put another $50 trillion into those markets, or $45 trillion, inevitably, if the market was, and I can't remember the numbers exactly, so this is a, a theoretical example, it's not based on real numbers, if the world's financial markets were roughly $100 trillion, we've now got $145 trillion in the world's financial markets, and prices have inflated by
0: 45%.
1: Very simplistically. And if you look at the whole, that's kind of what's happened in the global equity markets. Because when bonds are at zero, the bond market ceases to be a growing market because you can't have have bonds at negative interest rates, but that doesn't really work, does it? And so what's happened is the financial markets that have absorbed the vast majority of that $45 trillion have been the equity markets. Mm. And equity market prices have gone up enormously since 2008. We've seen this massive bull run, this this single largest run in in the history of of markets. Mm. And the reality is actually the underpinning earnings of all of those real balance sheet assets that we are trading in the markets hasn't increased nearly as much as the value that has been attributed to them in in their share prices. Mm -hmm. And therein lies the rub. We need to find a way to draw a lot of that $45 trillion into real balance sheet gain. And we need to draw it into real balance sheet gain in a way that is ecologically sustainable. Mm -hmm. And there are a whole bunch of interesting examples of that. I mean, I was looking at wind. And ultimately, wind is one of the greenest forms of energy. To build and operate wind, let's, again, to give you the the exact numbers are are too difficult to get into, and they vary between countries, but basically, let's say it costs you 10. So the life cycle total cost of building a wind turbine and connecting it to the grid per megawatt is 10. Hydrocarbon-based gray energy is 20. The lived experience of wind isn't 10. The actual cost of building it and running it is 10. But the lived experience of it, because of the environment that it's in, the regulatory space, the fact that it doesn't get an agreement to connect it to the grid for 10 years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is actually 30. And then government subsidizes the 30 to bring it back to the 20 that hydrocarbon is costing. So the taxman is actually paying 40 for something that actually costs 10 And it's in the gift of business and it's in the gift of our leaders with a smart pen, and I stress a very smart pen, to hold to what's key and critical to protect the planet and the people and to move the cost of green energy from 30 to 10, and it's doable. But instead, the journey, certainly since 2010, has been in the opposite direction. And getting that into our heads is how we get to a solution to the future of the world and, critically, your three Ps, the planet, its people, and making a profit out of that.
0: Yeah. It's actually very interesting. that you use that example because uh this is a bit of a tangent but i remember a couple of, uh, one of the things that uh i've often questioned is why is it that um the us fed is allowed to print money at a rate that no other central bank is able to do because in any other country if you print that much money you tend to you know have overruns in terms of inflation and you know all of those things but somehow that um, economy continues to, to tick along. And then someone actually said exactly what you said to me. And they said, listen, it's not that there's more inflation. You need to check what's happening in the economy. There is inflation, but it's all been concentrated in one sector, which is to your well, point. Yeah. Which is the stock market and, you know, mm-hmm. financial markets. Um, to your point. So, you know, very interesting that, um, you know, you, 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 you came out. Uh, to that particular point, and the other one, you know, for me is the fact that in a, ad- I guess in addressing, you know, some of the, the the world's big problems, like you said, is the fact that uh, there is a today mentality as opposed to the to the long term one. You know, where you're looking at how do you concentrate resources, you know, in one in one area you 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 inflate you know prices unnecessarily but it doesn't go back into the real balance sheet you know of the world that you're there and the reason why i even began by saying are we um what you call this are we having a a relook at capitalism is because in any market you know that after a while you know after a while things must correct right um, if to your point that we have gone and inflated all of these notional prices and it hasn't gone into the real balance sheet, uh, I guess for the way it's structured, in my the way it's seeming to me is that philanthropy is an attempt to correct. To correct, but it's at this tiny
1: percentage yes, of world GDP, is, so it yes. doesn't have an effect. This is this is the key, and so I mean, if one. If one realizes that actually the greatest single contribution that can be made by any particular business or any particular individual, more importantly than any business, is to make a real contribution to the real amount of goods and services that are available in the world in a sustainable way. Yeah. That is the single biggest contribution that anyone can make. And going back to the philanthropic activity in that third bucket of good, of super good philanthropic activity. What that's doing is it's basically preparing the field for a new enterprise, new real balance sheet contributor, mm-hmm. whether it's the property rights, whether it's the contribution in conservation. We need to talk a little bit about that because for me, it's critical. I mean, and, and maybe I just segue over there, but before I get there, uh, and that then becomes the, 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 the pre-VC, the super-VC enabler and it becomes this catalytic domain creator. And that's what philanthropy is truly, when it's when it's at its best, that's what philanthropy does. The rest of philanthropy is great. It does good. It's not bad, but it doesn't do anything like the good it could do if it was super philanthropy. And, and so for me, that is the journey, is how do we get more people to focus on Really, creating these new sectors by using philanthropy to open them up to create the ideas to create the space so that people can participate in critically the sustainable way, and so coming back to the sustainability conversation and and, and, and the, the, the the importance of of conservation, really conservation for me is part of a solution and a part of, before you get to the solution, you have to identify and analyze the problem. And for me, the best way to analyze, I'm, I'm a great believer, there's all sorts of detail in my head which is scientifically supported and, and makes, you know, makes for a lecture that puts everybody to sleep. Yeah. But if you're going to try and put it in a way that is, is relatable, for me, the world we live in is like a human body. When a human body gets sick, it runs a temperature. The world is currently sick. It's running a temperature. Why is it sick? Because we're feeding it—excuse the language—but we're feeding it crap. And did you ever talking about things? Did you ever see the movie Supersize Me?
0: Yes, yes. Uh, this, uh, yes.
1: Anybody who's seen the movie Supersize Me—it's about Mc- eating McDonald's and only McDonald's for a year. It's really worth going and seeing. And the analog between what happens to the guy in Supersize Me, where he eats McDonald's for an entire year, and at the end of the year, he's obese and malnourished. Sounds like an oxymoron, but it's true. He was obese and he was malnourished. And it was because he ate a homogeneous product for a year. If you feed the earth a homogeneous product, it is the guy in Supersize Me. We are becoming obese as a planet, and we are becoming malnourished as a planet and what all the science is now saying is a healthy gut biome is how you stay healthy as a human being it's the second brain it's the second really important center in how your brain works how neural pathways can develop there's all sorts of science that now says the human body is actually not just one organism it's multiple complex organisms and the best thing you can do for the human body is complete and and protect and support the biodiversity that is the human body. And the more biodiverse it is, the more resilient it is, the more adaptable it is, the more survivable it is. The world the same. The world needs to protect biodiversity. If we can protect our biodiversity and enhance our use of the biodiversity in the world, then we get to a point where we are truly resilient and, and robust and, and sustainable. And I'll give you a, a, an interesting analog. Human beings who are one of the biggest, after termites, one of the biggest consumers of energy on the planet, of food energy on the planet, um, predominantly eat 13 grains. I think it's 13 grains. There are over 10,000 edible grains in the world. So what we end up doing is genetically modify those 13 grains, which are becoming increasingly less and less healthy and less and less nutritious for us. Meanwhile, we don't, because it's slightly more difficult to grow them or harvest them or exploit them or put them in an industrial process, we ignore the remainder, all 9,990 of them plus, and we end up in a place where we get ourselves completely and utterly screwed. So using that same analogy, what is at the forefront of protecting biodiversity, conservation, and understanding conservation? And so the work that we're doing here at Oppenheimer is we're we're tilting increasingly to trying to think and bring together those two bits, this super enlightened, if I wanna call it super philanthropy, and this desperate need and, and a really strong need to protect conservation or biodiversity uh, through understanding and science and, and real data. So what we're trying to do is be smarter. We're, we're trying to be super smart about being super effective at trying to protect our ecology and our environment. And so that is the work that we're trying to do. And so the work that uh, Research and Conservation are doing, the, the Oppenheimer Research Conference, which we run, what's been going 12 years now uh, are all designed to produce data and then share data in the most effective way, because this isn't our proprietary data. Yeah, we might have generated, but we want to share it in an open source way with the world, because if it can help the world do smart philanthropy and ideally actually do smart capitalism. You know, we'd love to see farms growing ancient grains and expanding the human consumption a slate of what they can eat from the 13 to 500, that would be our dream because that creates greater sustainability. Helps mankind be more resilient, but it also helps the planet be more resilient. And so going back to your three Ps, we absolutely recognize that we need to protect the planet and we need to protect the people. And the only way we can do that is by creating systems that are sustainable. And the only way they're sustainable is if they make money.
0: So we have uh, a couple of minutes left, yeah, you know, being cognizant of time. And one of the things I was going to ask about is why is it important for you know the wealthy, yeah, to channel their funds towards philanthropy in one way or another or, or another. And I think you did, you know, touch on it, you know, earlier on, you know, to 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 some element. But I think a bigger one, you know, that perhaps we can end today's discussion on is the direction of flows when it comes to philanthropy. Um, One of the big conversations that's happening in the space, uh, particularly in African philanthropy, is the direction of, uh, of philanthropic funds, because they tend to flow from developed countries into developing countries. And that might influence whatever the agenda is going to be on the other side, you know, what problems actually get to be tackled and that type of thing. So just keen to get, you know, any thoughts you might have on that.
1: So I'm going to sound a little bit like a broken record and come back to the three buckets. Yeah. A lot of the money that comes into countries for philanthropy is often driven by those first two buckets. It's driven in part either by ego or it's driven in part by companies or individuals trying to secure a social contract. And that kind of philanthropy, as I said, is really short-term beneficial to a community that it touches, and and I can't argue against it. I think it does great work. But is it really making a lasting, permanent contribution to the well-being of mankind, or the well-being of a society, or the well-being of a village? If you want to go down to the micro, not really, because when it goes, what happens? It's a, it's that old analog in the Bible about giving a man a fish versus teaching a man to fish. We're in the business of trying to help invent the new way of fishing and then giving that knowledge to people so that they can fish. We're not in the way- business of giving people fish. That's from our own pers- perspective. There are people out there who give fish, and they fulfill a really vital, critical role, particularly in, in times of crisis. And that's all... And and I'm never going to gainsay that. That's great, and it's really important that they do it, but if you really, as a as a a wealthy individual who has disposable income to spare, and that's the key of why I think the wealthy have such an important role to play in the future of our society, because they have some disposable income to spare, is to use a proportion of that disposable income to do the super philanthropic activity of catalyzing and, and, and uh the, These new domains, these new spaces, these new ideas, so that they can make this this massive venture capital like retu- contribution to society 's well being yeah. and if we can do that, then I think we we have a chance of surviving and 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 protecting and and our planet forever but if we can 't if we can 't really find the way to make the future better than it is today,
0: yeah.
1: then we are dooming ourselves to highly probable extinction. And that's a scary place to be. And that's, and, and people who own, the people who ma- own and manage the real balance sheet really need to think about that real balance sheet's future. And if they can, then they can ensure Mankind's future.
0: So that's where we end off for today. It has been a really fascinating discussion. I'm going to call out two particular points, which I think are quite key. Uh, the first one, uh, you know, being the fact that we have been discussing the role of philanthropy in addressing some of uh, society's big. Um, you know issues, and when it comes to uh, the sustainability equation, so to say, the people planet profit, um you know Jonathan just mentioning the fact that you know the ordering of those three things is quite important uh, because you know it 's good to address and you know make sure you take care of the people, take care of the planet, but in the construct of the world that we live in today. Very little of it can be done without the profit, you know, actually, you know, making sure that you can, um, you know, fund and address um, some of those issues. And then I like the analogy that he gave of, uh, of a human body, you know, simply to say that, um, you know, the, at the end of the day, the planet, people, you know, the world that we live in, it is a living organism. You know that has you know a number of different elements to it and we all need to be doing our part to make sure that that body is functioning the way that it is meant to be functioning, or else we find ourselves, you know, at moments like the one that we're in right now, where, um, you know, the world is in a sick place, and to use this analogy, is running a temperature, right? And, uh, you know, some type of a correction, you know, does need to be done. Not everyone, you know, can uh, can can address conservation. Not everyone can address education, not everyone can do poverty, but if there is a concerted effort across the board, particularly for the super philanthropy, um, you know, to use, um, you know, his term in those three buckets, you know, then hopefully, you know, we can have an organism that is able to push forward and we can have, uh, you know, a reimagination of what capitalism is and what it can actually do to make the world a better place. Pocket costs or wherever you choose to get your pods casted. I've been Mudiwa Gavaza of the Business Day and Financial Mail and this has been another edition of the Business Day Spotlight which is a multimedia live production. So for myself and the rest of the team it is a good evening good afternoon and good morning. <music>